Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. If you appreciate our podcast, please consider making a contribution by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Enjoy. This is a poem by Nyogen Senzaki for his teacher, Soen Shaku Roshi. It was written November 5th. 1946, while he was imprisoned in the internment camp of Heart Mountain, Wyoming. The work goes on and on, hammering and forging the steel of Zen. Wherever a monk lives, the old process continues, time after time. Here comes another autumn dawn. The lamp still burns while morning rain patters at the window. Let us pay homage to our Roshi, Soen Shaku. Namo Taso Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambudhasa. We have a little signal at that time. I'm happy to have everyone face this way. And those of you who are behind me, please take whatever it is you're sitting on and bring it over behind the others in front of me. And if you're hidden behind a chair, knock the chair. No, um, just move down so that you can see.
or move up. Good afternoon. We are here in the footsteps of the great Zen master, Soen Shaku. And we heard a poem by his disciple, Yogen Senzaki. And I wanted to read a little section from his autobiography, Soen Shaku Zenji's autobiography. From the section called The Broad-Mindedness of My Teacher. One summer, when I was the attendant monk to Shungai Roshi, he went to visit another temple. As it was after dinner, I thought that I would have the opportunity to take a good rest, so I stretched myself out full length in the corridor of the monastery. (laughs) I must have been snoring. although I did not know it because I was in dreamland. Master Shungai came back sooner than was expected and had to pass through the very corridor where I was lying. I woke up, but pretended I was still asleep. My teacher did not step over me but quietly walked around me to a place near my feet, saying politely, I beg your pardon, and then went to his room. I was so ashamed. My face burned and sweat poured down my back. I learned through that incident how to be broad-minded enough to be able to teach. Nyogen Senzaki's comment. <clears throat> Soen Shaka was very severe when he gave personal guidance. He used his big stick freely and scolded us like thunder, insulting us with scathing words. After Doksan was over, he was like sunshine after a dark <laughs> storm. At first, we thought that the old teacher was acting a role but later we found out that he really had no pretensions. When he was angry, he was really angry. And when he smiled, he really smiled. In his everyday life, he never mentioned the shortcomings of others and used kind words on every occasion other than in Doksan. <laughs> when he happened to see us gossiping about others' faults, he quietly stepped out, avoiding us, just as his old teacher had stepped around him, saying, 
I beg your pardon. Wonderful teaching. So, after his teacher passed away, So Shaku continued training with the very famous Kousenni Makita Roshi, who was the abbot of Engakuji. And 10 years later, at the age of 25, he received Inka, Dharma transmission, from Kosen Imakita Roshi. And he was uh, very interested in everything. So in Shaku, wanted to know everything he possibly could. He studied Western philosophy, religion, literature, political theory, and became rather restless in his position there in the monastery. He had persevered through all that training for two decades. He had mastered all the forms. There was something he just felt wasn't quite right. It was a kind of an existential crisis that he went through. What is true practice? What is my role here? What is my life for? Has anyone ever felt that way? What is true realization? And he went through this dark night of the soul. Wasn't even sure he could stay in his monastic calling. So his teacher consulted with another Roshi and the two of them decided that they should suggest that he go somewhere away from the Japanese Rinzai establishment. In fact, this Fukuzawa Roshi said, what about traveling to Ceylon? Ceylon is present Sri Lanka. Investigate the source. In this way, he was saying to him, go and train in the Buddha's way according to the elders. Theravada Buddhism, pejoratively known as Hinayana, the lesser vehicle, a misunderstanding perpetrated by the Mahayana, of course, the greater vehicle. (laughs) Because Mahayana Buddhists think that only they, or we, are following the bodhisattva's path. Because in Theravada Buddhism, there is no mention of it per se. But when you meet Theravadan Buddhists, you know they are nothing but this Bodhisattvahood themselves. Think of Bhikkhu Bodhi. How many of you know Bhikkhu Bodhi? How many of you have met with him, heard his teachings? 
and read his interpretations of the Pali texts, the early teachings of the Buddha. Nothing but the Bodhisattva permeating every word, every act. But anyway, so go back. Don't give up your original intention, this Fukuzawa Roshi said, very skillful. Just cultivate your trust in the Dharma by going elsewhere, going somewhere completely different. We all need that from time to time. You think you know what you're doing? You're following this path? Somebody needs to throw you off so that you can truly embody it completely without any gap. So please let me know if you feel you are at such a point and I will suggest something to you that you may find very challenging. This is what we need to be challenged in our practice. Not same old, same old. There is no way. There is no same. There is no old. It's right here. First time. First breath. So anyway, Soenshaku sailed in 1887 at the age of 27, two years after he received transmission, sailed off to Ceylon and began practicing with Theravada monks. He learned Pali. He took the name Panaketu. And he wrote to his teacher, I'm living a real beggar's life here with a set of three-piece robes, and a begging bowl. At night, the grass is my bed and a stone my pillow. When the days bring rain, I shrink myself up like a turtle, smiling at my own appearance. I want to stay in this country for at least three years. And... When the end of that three-year period came, he did not want to return. Nonetheless, he was prevailed upon. Come back. All right. Okay. I will. And so in 1890, he went back to his teacher. And two years later, Kousenimakita Roshi passed away. And he, Soenshaku, was installed as the abbot of Engakuji. He was 33 years old. Who hears 33? Hmm? Nobody? Hmm. So... That time of exploration seemed to have come to an end. He put on the heavy iron yoke of the abbotship. And yet, his mind continued to be completely unconventional, open, ready. And what happened? One thing led to another. A year later, He was in Chicago, 
delivering an address, in fact, two talks at the World Parliament of Religions. And with him was his 23-year-old young disciple named Daisetsu Suzuki, who translated for him. And in the audience was a woman named Ida Evelyn Russell. She became the first Zen student in America. She trained with Soin Shaku both in the States when he came back at her invitation in 1905 and in Japan. And of course, Nyogen Senzaki and Dichi Suzuki, both disciples of his, came with him or shortly after him in 1905. And that's why we're here. This amazing mandala, Soen Shaku, first ancestor of Zen in America. His disciples, without Nyogen Senzaki and his relationship with Soen Nakagawa Roshi, we would not be sitting here. Edo Roshi would not have come to America. Without D.T. Suzuki, the Zen Studies Society would not have been founded in 1956 to support his work. So again and again, I go over this history because it's so incredible, so unimaginable. We must keep it in our hearts because we are doing this, we are keeping this alive. Every time we come here to this temple, to Daivasatsu, Syracuse, wherever this Sangha finds itself, We are continuing this work, this extraordinary history continues. Are you excited or are you asleep? (laughs) (laughs) What will you do? This is very important. These great figures in our history, went through inconceivable, arduous struggles to do what the Dharma asked of them. How can we do any less? So each one of you is so amazing so unique. I look at your faces and is just this um, unbelievable bodhisattva realm. You don't know it. (laughs) Some of you have some glimmer. But you are. You are. You may think, well, I only have a few years left. I'm not going to do it those few years. You know? <laughs> a few of the younger people, okay, fine. But every breath, 
every breath by breath, we are doing it together. So, in Toronto this year, this year, we have changed the name a little bit, called the Parliament of the World's Religions, November 1st through 7th. This book weighs a ton. <laughs> I carried it with me every day, every day. And it didn't do me that much good because <laughs> I couldn't keep up, you know? There was so much. Togon and I were both there. Jikyo from uh, Hoenji was there. Not that we ever saw each other, just up and down the escalators. Oh, she's going to some, okay, I'm going this way, I think. It was the size of the dome, maybe? Eight floors. The eighth floor was down in the bowels of the earth. So there were a lot of elevators. There was a bridge. There was a lot of walking to all these little, many, many seminar rooms and then huge plenary, 8,000 of us. plenary theater uh, and assembly theater. Um, it was amazing. The thing that I found so difficult, everybody did really, was that you would find maybe six things that were going on at 2.15 that you wanted to attend out of the 50 that were happening at 2.15. And each one was absolutely remarkable. Then... 4.15, another 50 to choose from. So I never had any time to really read through this. So I'm sitting upstairs here looking at this. I didn't make it to that one. Oh, damn. Look who was talking on. Oh, my God. I missed. Where was I then? Oh, I was. And then I remember I was doing something incredible. So... <laughs> It was really, really something. I wanted to share some of it with you. Now, in the spirit of this parliament, which was titled The Promise of Inclusion, The Power of Love, could not have been more perfect. I want you to take this to heart. If you are sitting here in pain, please stand up anytime while I'm speaking. Okay? If you need to shift your position, please do. Don't think. <laughs> <laughs> No need, no need, especially some of you are on the back floor. If you are in perfect samadhi, 
fine. Continue. We will give you a nudge when it's Kenyan time. Okay? So with that being clear, all right. So many religions were represented. And also, maybe you've heard the expression, the nuns, young people who write nun when asked to fill out their religion. So there was actually a panel titled, Nuns and Nuns. (laughs) Nuns of every variety, some in habits, some with shaved heads, some with lots of tattoos. (laughs) But anyway, we had Buddhism, we had Christianity, we had Judaism, we had Islam, we had Taoism, we had Confucianism, we had the Sikhs, we had the Hindus, we had the Jains, we had the Zoroastrians, we had an Ayurvedic leader, we had a Mayan uh, elder, we had a goddess, many, many goddesses came. <laughs> it was great. We had NGOs, we had a different kind of religion, and we had so many interpretations of all of those. And truly an international gathering. There we were, just as Soan Shaku went to Ceylon at that time. Sri Lanka came to us. Thailand came to us. All these wonderful people in their robes of various shades of orange, yellow, red, Tibetans. Wonderful group gathering together. And one felt that the parliament itself had really grown from the early days. In fact, one of the indigenous people said, you know, uh, the last parliament, 19, what was it, 93? So, yeah, 2015 was the last one. And there was some token acknowledgement of... uh, Native American presence. But this year, it was more than just inclusion. In fact, the indigenous peoples were our true north. And I say that in meaning two ways, because I had no idea that so many nations lived in the area of this world called North America. As I said, there was one Mayan woman. There were a few indigenous people from other areas. But my goodness, from Canada, we call now, and the area around Syracuse and... St. Lawrence, we had 
the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations, which are Onondaga, based in Syracuse, Mohawk, Bjorn's going to help me, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, and Tuscarora. Very good. The two of us could do that. And we had uh, Masquasis Cree, Ojibwe Anishinabe, Nawash, Shiwa, Mi'kmaq, Lakota, Unangan Elut, Hopi, Dene, Cherokee, Apache, Ifa. Just a few of the ones that I actually got the names for. And the opening, oh, where's a sacred fire? There was a teepee outside the Toronto Convention Center, which, as I say, is at least as big as the dome in Syracuse, and very uh, modern and shiny. And there in the courtyard was a teepee and the sacred fire, which was lit at the very beginning and was kept going throughout the entire seven or eight days of the parliament. So the indigenous people's program was titled The Healing of Mother Earth and the Spiritual Evolution of Humanity. So this theme ran through the entire parliament. This theme is running through what we are doing here. This is our, what we are here for, in case you didn't know it. The healing of Mother Earth and the spiritual evolution of humanity. I don't have to tell you that we are in a climate crisis. And there are, as you know, and as we heard throughout this conference, there are many scientific and policy-driven approaches. One person quoted from Helen Keller, Science is able to find cures for various illnesses, but not to the apathy of human beings. Not so different from what the Buddha said, right? Ignorance is at the root of all illness. So we heard, we have 12 years. So from 2018 to... Hmm? 2030. We have until 2030 to make the kinds of definitive moves, policy actions that are needed to reach a very modest goal of bringing the Earth's warming from carbon dioxide below 2 degrees. 
Will this happen? Can we get it down to 1.5 degrees? To zero? So as you may know, from 2007 to 2017, we had the 10 hottest years in the history of our planet. We know the Lotus Sutra. What does the Lotus Sutra say? We are living in a burning building. We know to do this practice. We must practice as though our hair were on fire. And whether we have hair or not, (laughs) it is. It is. And we know as Buddhist practitioners that this dilemma is the result of our own karma, our willful ignorance. How many years ago did we hear from Gore about an inconvenient truth? A long time ago, right? And we said, that's right, it's inconvenient, and moved on. And here we are. His daughter was one of the presenters. So, you know, as one of the people said at the session on climate change, science, and the spiritual Our way of living is unsustainable. That's it. It's just unsustainable. So usually, you know, people in poorer nations, what we used to call third world nations, are trying to come up to our technological standards. And it's understandable, but what we need is to go down to theirs. Otherwise, we all go up in flames together. So yes, let us think this way. How can we lower our standard of living? Of course, you know we are in an endless cycle of greed from the top down right now. And greed equals spiritual poverty. We are all, in this way, very poor indeed. And the damage that we've caused the earth and the rate of change this heating up, heating up, heating up, must bring about a new kind of repentance that will allow us to sacrifice 
our luxury-bound ways of living. If we can't do that, 12 years will be here like that. One of the inspiring panels in this climate action track was called Spiritual Ecology and Sacred Rebellion. Some of you know Kanji Lucia Henley. She trained at DBZ and will be back soon. And she and her cohorts showed us a video of transforming guns into shovels. What an alchemy that is. Going into the inner city, collecting guns, going through this alchemy, and instead of lead, shovels and other such community-based acts. So the creativity of that is required to really change things uh, was admirably presented by that group of young people, all under 30. Lotus Sutra's metaphor, living in a burning building, doesn't seem so metaphorical. It seems real indeed. And what it asks us to do is to practice with urgency. We need the urgency that we hear when the Han is struck. Twelve, eleven, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. And this urgency sometimes makes us feel that we have to do something, anything. We have to become more of an activist. We have to make our views about this and that and the other thing known and try to persuade others. But when we come from this kind of superficial uh, collection of facts, nothing can really come through. We have to come from our own place of silent awareness, deep listening, true understanding, just this before we can make any communication possible. can't figure it out. Plenty of scientists are doing that. But in the end, they say, and they said to us, we need you spiritual leaders to really light a fire under your communities, to really allow people to feel this urgency in their own lives 
and to come together, to act together, to collaborate. Figuring it out is impossible. As some of you who have worked on koans know, it doesn't work to try to use your logical skills, your rational approaches, the intellectual acumen. All these mental strategies, what do they bring you to? One brick wall or another. There are plenty to go around. So we can't do something that's forced or ego-driven. We have to let go of all of that. And some of you know that we lost a wonderful American Buddhist teacher last Sunday. Tomorrow morning, we will offer our chanting to Bernie Glassman. In his book, Infinite Circle, he said, Although there are many ways to practice and each is different, practice always boils down to the same thing. We must let go completely. Usually we practice in order to acquire or gain something, not to let go. We start sitting because we want to become better in some way, right? Notice things about yourself, you don't like them so much, okay, I guess I'll try something, try doing some sitting. To improve our physical well-being, to become more intelligent or more stable, to experience samadhi or even enlightenment, the list is endless. Usually, practice is a matter of what we want to gain. But the message that keeps coming back from the practice itself is let go. Let go. Let go. To which we usually respond, I don't want to. (laughs) Or I want to get something. I want to be taught. But again, the practice keeps saying, let go. So we've all experienced the resistance that comes just this side of letting go, right? Finding something to hold on to. Feeling I've got to... shore up that frightened... Ego, that self that I have identified myself with, fear is a big issue. Fearing what's next. Fearing we don't know how to deal with a situation that as I've been discussing, has such urgency. You're 12 years and you fear, okay, what does this really mean for me? That me, 
I, me, mine, is all tangled up in fear. Fear that we don't have what it takes to really do this practice. Fear that we're never going to have that inner stability, that inner peace. And just not knowing what to do, how to make it happen, creates anxiety. But what for me was so powerful about this parliament of world's religions was the experience of the wisdom of, I will use this term and please don't laugh, the goddess, you laughed. The wisdom of women. We had an incredible group of women there and the sessions that were devoted to women's issues and the power of women. And the power of what has been seen as threatening for millennia and has been kept down and abused in so many ways. I can say this to you all, male and female and in between, right? I am not saying this to make men uncomfortable, but because it's true. At one point in one of the larger sessions, it was uh, an assembly of women in the huge theater. There maybe were, I don't know, if there were 8,000 of us and half of us were gathered there, there was a lot of people. One of the speakers said, if you are willing, if you are able, please stand if you have experienced abuse sexual abuse, violence, any kind of abuse. Then she said, look around. Almost everybody was standing. Then she said, if you know of anyone who has experienced this, please stand. Almost Everyone who had been sitting was standing. And then she said, those of you who feel you can be allies, please stand. So about 45, 5,000, 4,500 or 5,000 of us were standing in that room. So there was that, and then the other thing that I felt was completely interwoven with that feeling. 
Okay, I'm going to back up a little bit before I say what I was just going to say. If you feel like standing, if you ever have been abused or know of someone who has and you want to stand just because your legs hurt, that's fine. (laughs) The other thing was something I never would have thought myself to be involved in. On the women's track, as it were, there was something at the end of the day that was called a women's commissioning and blessing. So I thought, okay, well, it was at a time when there were only five other things that I wanted to do. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. So I went to this place. And the room it was supposed to be in was empty. And there was a sign that said, go to this other room. Okay, it's another five miles down through there and the bridge and down and up and the escalator. Okay, got there. And, and, and what was going on was um, a line of women kind of processing through this room, surrounded by a circle of women and some men, and people chanting and, and drumming and doing uh, rattle and playing music. And the refrain was, come on, woman, come on. You know, I love you today. I'm loving you today. And I got right on that serpentine line. (laughs) And we traversed this room again and again and again and again. And around and more women came in and around and again. And then we had a serpentine line that was doubling over and tripling over and going through this room. It was about the size We can try it later. (laughs) Chanting all along, come on, woman, come on. You know, I'm loving you today. And continuing, more people coming in, more people. I mean, I tell you, I never would have thought that I would be on such a thing. But I loved it. (laughs) And we just went on and on. And every time this line passed each other, you know, long line like this, you keep seeing... We were all looking at each other. This is really something. You're passing someone. Try it on the subway. Just sing this in your heart. Come on, woman, come on. Come on, man, come on. You know I'm loving you today. Make eye contact. Hey, look. Some of you are looking down like, oh, no, I'm not going to look at her. <laughs> hey, what are we here for? Huh? Can you look at me? No? Yes? I'm loving you today. Can you feel it? Hmm? You're looking around to see if they feel it? Hmm? Is it so scary? Is that what our fear is all about? Are we afraid to be the recipient of love? Hmm? I'm loving you today. If there's anything about this practice that is worthwhile, Maybe some of you have wondered from time to time, oh, God, 
sit down. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, right. Just remember this. This is what we're doing. This is what the world is yearning for. And what we heard from, this is getting back to what I said I would get back to, the other track, which was interwoven throughout the entire conference, was the track of the indigenous peoples. And they all, in their own way, their own stories, told what I just told you. But I want to to just tell you a few of the stories in five minutes. Okay. As I said, you can get up. And you can walk out. (laughs) This one guy just really blew me away. After he spoke, I mean, I had just heard Karen Armstrong. She was fabulous on uh, She Too said, we can't apply compassion to our own special group. We must give love in the sense in which Jesus meant it to everyone, including our enemies, today. That was a parenthetical. So getting back, I went from hers to the longhouse. They had constructed a longhouse of metal inside this huge place. And I, Togan and I actually went to this together. Um, One of the few times we could find each other. One of the other times that we found each other twice was eating. The Sikhs provided a meal for everybody, for 8,000 people, every noon. They made us the most incredible meal. We had to wear the little orange scarves. You know, they tied them on their, our heads and then got in line and received our rice and lentils and beans and curry and sat down on the floor on these long strips of metallic, I don't know what it was, kind of thing on the floor. How did I get to the Sikhs? Oh, because we always ate. Yeah. huge I mean you know this enormous cavernous room and they were coming around with pails you finished your first you know round of food rice lentils this is their practice langar any city you go to anytime you're hungry Go to a Sikh temple. They will feed you. That's what they do. This is what I mean. This beautiful experience. Okay. I was getting to Larry. His name was actually, uh, that was his English name, but his name was actually Cleo. And he was an Unangan Aleut from the Bering Straits. Do you know where the Bering Straits is? Right? Very far north, right? Where? Between Russia and Alaska. You can actually see Russia from there. 
<laughs> he was amazing. He told us that at the age of four, he was given to his grandfather to raise in the spiritual ways of the elders. And one day they were looking at the sea and he was just so struck by the light, the, the sky, the water. He said, oh, it's so beautiful. And his grandfather went like this. Now, you know the Zen story, very similar. And what does the guy say? What a pity to say so. So he told us a story of how when he was quite young, I don't know how young, maybe 10 years old, he stole $20 from his grandfather because he really had his eye on this plastic plane, airplane, in their little store. And he just had to get it. Unfortunately, while he was buying it, as in the small indigenous communities, his aunt was there behind him. And she said, mm, what'd you get? Where'd you get that bunny from? And he told her. And she said, what do you think you should do? Not a word of chastisement. Not you bad boy. Nothing. What do you think you should do? Mm. So he brought the plane back to the store manager, got the $20 back. His aunt took $20 out of her pocket and bought him the plane. He went to his grandfather and told him. And his grandfather said, good boy. This is inconceivable to many of us, I think. To have a community of such loving acceptance and yet, the discipline was right there. Then, at the age of five, he had been given a spiritual mentor. And he was under his wing until he was 13. And he said all those years, he doubted that there were more than 200 words exchanged. He said, words are not only superfluous, but maybe dangerous. And his name, Cleo, means messenger. And he said, that's what I'm doing as an illusion. I'm living the legacy of my name. There was only one other Cleo, and he came to find me. From a different island, he knew, he knew where I was. And he also led me to understand what would be taken from us. What it is to be a real human being. 
Some of you were here when Kobayashi Roshi came for the 50th. Do you remember him jumping up and down? This Larry said, to live a way of life based on a two-year-old child who does things naturally, like jumping up and down, reversing the pull of gravity, cleansing the toxins, releasing the energy. And then he warned us. He said, you know, What we choose to focus our minds on becomes our reality. When we focus on negative things, on so-called bad states, it becomes our reality. And he also told us all these years of keeping the wisdom teachings to ourselves must now come to an end. The time for secrets is over. The elders' message, message, the elders' messages must be given freely now, all over the world, in various languages. There is a great sense of urgency. So don't focus on the negative symptoms. Look at the root cause. The violation of Mother Earth. And then he spoke about women and how important it is and how the elders are saying that women will lead the way because, he said, we have to go to the heart. We have to go to the womb. Most of us, he said, have forgotten how to talk from the heart. We think we have to go from the mind. But in fact, what we have to do is get out of the mind, go to the heart, and then, then, only then, can the mind know what to do when it comes from the heart. Of course, in Chinese, Japanese, the word for heart is the same as the word for mind, right? Shin. So from our tradition, we know this too. But the way we live is not often from that unity, that oneness of heart-mind. Again, we think we have to figure it out, and then somehow... Magically, we'll have a fix for it. No. No. We have to go from the heart. And he spoke about the men. And he said, men need to protect the sacred space of women so that they can do their work. And he said he had just been in Israel. And they had a circle. The women sat in a circle facing each other. The men sat around that circle facing out, protecting so that the work could be done. So many, many wonderful things he said, and I don't have time to tell you. And he also said, 
we create time out of this duality of heart and mind. But I don't have time to tell you more. (laughs) He said, one thing we can all do, like that two-year-old jumping up and down, to go from the uh, imbalance of mental activity to the loving nature of the heart and womb, he said, just practice for a month, crying, laughing, and speaking gibberish every day. Then lie down and be quiet, and your mind will shut down like a two-year-old. So you can try this. And now jump. Very good. One of the other uh, things that many of the indigenous people talked about was... The residential schools, I don't know how many of you know about this, but right now we have about 2,000 children who are in, in prison whose parents were sent back over the border. These residential schools were, some, most of them were in Canada, but there were some in this country too where children were uprooted and basically kidnapped and forced to these uh, to live in these situations where they were stripped of their language, not allowed to be with their families, and abused hideously, raped, beaten, thrown into confinement, starved, And the people who spoke about it had firsthand experience through their grandparents. And we heard from several of these amazing speakers about what it was like to grow up and not have anyone touch you, to grow up and never hear a word of approval, never hear a loving statement from your parents and your grandparents because the grandparents had been in those schools and they were unable to give any love to their children. And generationally, this has been passed down. And Tom Porter, who's, who spoke in place of Oren Lyons from the Onondaga Nation, because Oren was, there is no time in Haudenosaunee world. He was two days late. Uh, anyway, Tom was sort of dragooned into giving a talk, and it was wonderful. And he spoke about, uh, about that, about his grandfather, who was in a residential school, and how... His mother, too, was affected by it. And how his mother had told him, you know, the reason your grandfather doesn't touch you, he never touched us either. And then when he was older and his mother was 
in the hospital about to die. He couldn't tell her that he loved her. That passing down of this, this frozenness, this fear of being able to express love. Some of us have it too. Some of us have been raised that way too. But particularly those in the nations where those residential schools were so predominant. So his mother was dying. He couldn't say, I love you. He had to run out of the room in order to cry. This was a very powerful experience that, as I say, we heard again and again. And the same Tom Porter told us that when he was driving to Toronto from the Onondaga Nation near Syracuse, he was thinking to himself, I don't know what I'm going to have to offer. I really don't have anything to say. I feel completely inadequate. And as he was driving along, he had, he heard, he had a visitation. I don't know how he put it exactly, but he heard a woman's voice. And he knew immediately that it was Mother Earth. And she said to him, I've nurtured and nourished and supported all life for billions of years. And now you are causing me to suffer. You're weakening my strength, my ability to continue to support you. Please take this message back to all of those you will be meeting. Tell people, you're hurting me. They need to stop. And he said, one of the things she suggested that we could do is stop driving at least twice a year on the 21st of December and the 21st of June, the solstices. Do not drive. Now, it makes no difference, really, to most of you because you don't have cars, you live in this city, but don't take a taxi. Don't get on a bus. Don't use any form of transportation that uses fuel, that raises the carbon dioxide. And someone else said, four months out of the year, just don't drive. So this was a kind of prevalent thing that we heard over and over again. But anyway, there were so many important messages that were given. And the most important one for me was when your heart is torn open by what you hear, by what you know, keep it open. Don't try to stitch it together again. Go deeper. 
Listen to your heartbeat. Don't shut down. Go straight into the fear. This is true courage. Go straight into the pain. Don't resist it. Be willing to feel. Be feeling Buddhas. Be feeling Bodhisattvas. Starting with your own wonderful wounded selves. There is no spiritual bypassing in this practice. So please let us do this together. Let us cry the tears of Kanzeon together. And let us look into each other's eyes and say, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thanks for listening to this Zen Study Society podcast. If you found this podcast to be meaningful or helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you and have a peaceful day.